Paul has been outlining to Titus the character and the conduct of the Christian church. And he's been dividing them up into groups, old and young. Or I should say, older and younger. And then he adds on to that tonight, speaking to slaves. And we might sort of rephrase that for our situation. Employees. Those that are on the job. Now I hope you'll forgive me tonight as I talk a little bit about work and the workplace. I know that many of you have had a hard day at work. The last thing you'd like to do is think about it. I think it was Mark Twain who said he didn't even like when other people were working, much less himself. It's not really a subject a lot of people like to dwell on. I heard a story of a man who was driving down the street and he saw a car that had obviously had a flat tire because it was tilted to one side and he drove up to it and he said, sure enough, there's a car with a flat tire, a woman was standing outside looking at it, wondering what to do. He thought, you know, I'll play the Good Samaritan, I've got time. So he goes there, jacks the car up, changes the tire for her. It's hot outside, he gets sweaty, he gets grimy, he gets dirty. Changes the tire, is about to put the car down, and the woman says, Excuse me, sir, but when you let the jack down, could you please put it down easily? My husband is asleep in the back seat of that car. There's a lot of people that just don't like to work. The apostle speaks to Titus and tells Titus, Titus, when you're together with the church in Crete, there are some directives that you must give them. Train older men to be a certain way. Younger men to be an example. Younger women to teach, to older women to teach younger women and younger women to be submissive and keepers at the home. And then he speaks about slaves. Let's just read the context together. Uh, verse 2, The older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in the faith, and love and patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to leave... To, excuse, gee, excuse me. <laughs> These are the things that give pastors nightmares, by the way. <laughs> that they would say something like that, not leave their husbands. Please edit that tape. Would you do that for me? That they admonish the young woman to love agape, be devoted to their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Paul the Apostle often addressed servants, bond slaves, 
typical slaves, some of which were menial laborers, some of which were corporate executives. We'll explain in a moment. But this is not the first time that he categorized them and then gave a directive to them. Of course, Ephesians chapter 6 he does it, Colossians chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and Titus chapter 2. He has a special message for those who are slaves working under a master. And tonight we want to, of course, apply this to us, because though there's not slavery, like the New Testament slavery, everyone has a boss. There is somebody who tells you what to do. And so there is the application for the Christian worker in the workplace. Outside your family, the place where you probably spend much, if not most, of your time is at work. When you meet someone, the first question usually is, what is your name? The second question is often, what do you do? And that's simply because in our society, we peg people and categorize them according to their contribution to society, as we call it, or to their work. And so when you give your phone number, there's usually your home phone, and then you say, here's my work phone, right? Of course, today it's a little more complicated. You have, let me give you my home phone, my work phone, my mobile phone, my home fax, my home office phone, my fax at work, my dog's mobile phone. I mean, there's a list of phone numbers, sometimes too many. But the average American works five to six days a week, and we divide our time, our days, up into usually eight-hour segments. Eight hours of work, eight hours free, eight hours of sleep. If you live to be the ripe old age of 70, the average lifespan, at least the biblical lifespan, you will uh, spend 20 years cumulatively working, 20 years solid working, another 20 years sleeping, seven years eating. I know people that could add a few years to that. <laughs> seven years of recreation and so forth. Jesus spoke so often about the need for the Christian to live his life in such a way that the world sees him. The Christian was never to be cloistered away, to be absent from society. In fact, he said, you are the light of the world. Along with that, he said, let your light so shine among men that men will see it and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I think one of the best places for that to happen is on the job, where people can examine your lifestyle, where they've got eight hours of your time, where you can demonstrate to them what a Christian lives like, what a Christian talks like, what a Christian thinks like. The family is the shaping place of the Christian life. Work is the stage of the Christian life. You are, whether you like it or not, on display. We usually don't like it, but we are on display. And so the non-Christian looks at the Christian in the workplace and says, hmm, what makes a Christian so different from me? How does a Christian come to work Monday morning bright and early? What is the Christian's work ethic? What do Christians do on the weekend that they talk about during the week? All these questions come to their minds, and they, of course, deserve a good answer. And they're given, hopefully, a good answer by the way, the lifestyle in which we work. Um, 
looking over our text, what we just read, we notice that Paul speaks to uh, gender and age. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. Then he adds on to those gender groups and age groups, slaves. Now why is that? Simply because the category of slaves included people from every single one of those age groups. There were young men, old men, younger women, older women, all, not all of them were slaves, but many from those different groups who would be included in the group of slaves. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul knew that there were so many slaves that he said, Brethren, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now when he wrote that, he knew that there were many slaves to whom he was writing. In fact, slavery was an established institution, a legal institution in the Roman Empire at the time this was written. It is estimated, folks, there were 60 million slaves. Half of the entire Roman Empire was a slave. So within the church, there were many people who would be known as slaves, young and old alike. Now, a slave was somebody who did a number of things. It could be menial labor. That's how we typically think of a slave, somebody in tattered clothes who just works hard, is perhaps in chains, but a slave in the Roman Empire could imply menial labor, but could it also be what we would say is a corporate executive. Luke, a doctor, was the slave, no doubt, of a man during this time period. Theophilus. Uh, some of them were well-educated and very refined. Often they were tutors, for wealthy Roman households, they watched the children. They were called the prototokos, the tutor, the schoolmaster, a slave who was refined and educated, and his job was to live at home and train up the children in Greek culture and literature and mathematics and so forth. Some of them were family doctors, but again, these guys were owned. They were slaves of usually wealthy family. And that's because... Work was considered beneath the dignity of the Roman citizens. You know, Rome is very much like America. The more they had, the lazier they got. They became so pampered that they thought, you know, since we, they couldn't invent creature comforts, they just had creatures give them comfort. They had people work hard for them. It was beneath their dignity to have a job. And so even Aristotle, the respected philosopher, said, slaves are the living tools of the empire. For a slave, life was hard and uncertain. Now sometimes if they were well-refined slaves, they had it a little bit better, but I say it was uncertain because the master was the boss. And it wasn't under the contract of, listen, if you're not a good slave, I'm going to fire you. He could kill you. He was the absolute ruler and authority of a slave's life. And so it was incumbent upon Paul to speak to that group of slaves, young and old alike. One writer from that time recommended that the way to buy a farm is to get rid of the old slaves and get new ones. He said, toss out the old slaves to die because they're simply broken tools. If a slave ran away, when he was caught, they would stamp on his forehead like a branding iron for a cow, F. 
for the Latin fugitivus, fugitive. He is a runaway slave. He's marked for life. Now, oftentimes they could die without a trial. If the master was generous, he could forgive him. But forever, that slave would bear the mark, fugitivus, fugitive, I'm a runaway from the law. Now, into this oppressive world, Christianity came. When Christianity came, some things were disrupted a little bit. The order, you might say, was disrupted. Tension occurred. Because Christians came along, according to the dictates of the Scriptures, and Paul the Apostle, for instance, said, well, masters are no better than slaves. Men are no better than women. Jews are no better than Gentiles. Of course, that would create a lot of tension especially in the settled order of things in the Roman Empire and in the context of Judaism. But in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, the apostle said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Now this evening we're going to look at simply two verses because Thursday night is our night to slow down and go in depth. We're not covering a whole chapter. We're not covering a little paragraph section like Sunday morning. We're uncovering each verse of this book slowly but surely. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10, the testimony of a Christian worker. And there's two points that I want to bring out. First of all, the profile, the profile of a good Christian worker and the purpose of a good Christian worker. The profile and the purpose. And by the way, this applies to you. This applies to every Christian in this room tonight. This applies to anyone who has a job of any kind or who is underneath any authority at all. And it's my contention that every person is under some kind of authority. The profile of a servant. Verse 9. Exhort bond servants, douloi, slaves, to be obedient to their own masters, well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Slaves be obedient. You know, I find it interesting that Paul never once said anything about abolishing such an oppressive institution. Isn't that interesting? Uh, slavery, even then, demoralized and dehumanized often, in, when taken to its extreme, the human being. Ripped him of his rights and his freedoms. They were taken away. Yet Paul never once wrote and said, we've got to abolish slavery. This is a bad thing. And it's necessary that the Christian overturn the Roman government. Never once. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, then Christianity was a moral minority. If you take Christianity in its beginning and compare it to all of the pagans in the Roman Empire, there weren't many of them. Even though it was rapidly growing, they were a moral minority. They had no political clout. Eventually, they had no rights to be involved in the political process, no clout, no power whatsoever. And the fabric of the Roman Empire was woven with slavery. It was everywhere. Half of the population were slaves. So it wasn't that easy to just say, this isn't right and I'm here to overturn it. Otherwise, if that was his contention, if he started going around doing that, then it would hinder the progress and the purpose of the gospel. Christianity would have been seen as simply this faction that is anti-government. 
ultra-conservative, abolish and overthrow the government. And God didn't want that, and Paul the Apostle knew that. That's why he refrained from trying to impose the value system. He simply said, basically, if you're a slave, be the best slave you can be. If you have an opportunity to quit being a slave and you get your freedom, go for it. But until then, be obedient to your masters. And so Paul said in another section, Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while you were a slave? Then don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. So number one, Christianity was a moral minority. Secondly, the primary purpose of the church was not to overthrow the government or change the policy. The primary purpose of the church was to preach the gospel. The primary purpose of the church was not to get into social events and be nice to this person and stand up for this right or that right, though Christians should be concerned, should be involved. It wasn't their primary focus. So don't misunderstand saying, Skip said that Christians shouldn't be involved politically, that Christians shouldn't be nice to other people, that we shouldn't be socially minded. I'm not saying that. Simply, the primary purpose... The primary focus is not these things. The primary focus is to preach the gospel. You know why that's important and why I say that? You'd be surprised how many people in the name of Jesus Christ feel like giving a check or giving somebody a piece of bread, period, is preaching the gospel. It is not. It is hopefully opening a door of evangelism. And the Christian church of all people should be the most concerned about the world around them, the policies around them, the poor around them, the hurting around them, should be the most compassionate. But to put it all in perspective, Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The spiritual is the most important. And by the way, Lest somebody says, well, yeah, that's true Christianity. Christians really aren't concerned about the real issues of life, the poor and so forth. That's bunk. When is the last time you heard about a strictly atheistic group opening up a hospital or an orphanage or giving food to another country or clothing? I don't know of one. You never hear about the sisters of Saint No One opening up something. You hear about a Christian group opening up orphanages, hospitals, and being involved in these programs. But the primary purpose was the spreading of the gospel. Example, I've been to India several times. You could go and take an Indian village in central India that's completely Hindu, and you could give them millions of dollars, and you could build them new buildings and give them new hospitals and nice clothes and great food, and you'd walk away and take all the pictures and put them in your brochures and feel smug. Give them 10 years and they'll be right back to where they started. It will not help them except very temporarily. Why? Because the problem in India is Hinduism. They've got enough resources to not only take care of India, but all of Asia within that country. The problem is their belief system that there are 80 million gods and the rats that consume their food are to be worshipped and not killed. And when you've got that demonic mindset... Giving them food that the rats will eat is not going to help them. So what do you do? You change the heart of the person by preaching the gospel. And when the heart changes, the standard of living will rise along with it. 
There are so many case studies of this happening around the world. That's why one missionary, Warren Webster, said, if I had to live my life over again, I'd live it to change people because you haven't changed anything until you've changed the lives of people. So, first order of business, the profile of a Christian worker. Slaves, be obedient to your own masters. Not slaves, rebel. Slaves, go on strike. Slaves, stand up for your rights. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. Pleasing in all things. Now, at this point, slaves aside, we can all relate to the rest of us as Christian employees. The word obey means, well, it is hupatasso. It means literally to rank underneath. Uh, let me paraphrase it. Get in line, Christian worker. Line up with what your boss wants. Rank under authority. Now, we all know, do we not, that for any society to function, there has to be a rule and an authority. Now, I know our country, our society, is becoming very much like the book of Judges. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. Started in the 60s. Forget authority. Question authority. Don't obey authority. Who is he to tell me what to do? I know what's best for me. In any structured society, for anything to work, you need order. You need to rank underneath. There needs to be a boss. There needs to be people to be bossed. I know we don't need slavery, but there needs to be someone clearly in charge. In a marriage, according to Paul the Apostle, there needs to be Christ over the man, not just the man out on his own saying, Submit, woman, submit. It says in the Bible. Well, it says, first of all, that we're to, you're both to submit to each other and to the Lord. So you submit to the Lord, then the wife submits to the husband. That's an order. In the family, children are to submit to their own parents. In society, Romans 13 says, we are to obey the laws of the land and those who are in government because they have been appointed by God. And when he wrote that, by the way, Caesar Nero, the greatest despot of the Roman Empire, was in charge. These are appointed by God. Okay, be obedient to your masters. Now, I'm uncovering this slowly because I want you to get the flavor of what he said and perhaps the impact of what he said to the early church. Hupatasso, be obedient, get in line with, rank underneath your masters. You know what the term is? You know, oftentimes in the Bible, the word for servant is doulos, uh, slave, and the term for master is kurios, lord. Here it's the word despotes, despot, absolute authority. Often used of a person who's not a nice guy. So, get in line with your despotic ruler, masters. That was the term that was used. This should then answer the question that some Christians have about working for a creep. I mean, what do I do if the guy is impossible to work with, demanding, always yelling? Well, in this society, you have the option to quit, number one. But as long as you're at the job, be obedient to your masters, it says. Despot, absolute authority. I think Peter knew that this was a problem even back then when he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, listen to this, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh and the unreasonable. The harsh and the unreasonable. 
Today, of course, there's an overemphasis on employees' rights and strikes because I don't get enough money, and perhaps there is that room for that in our society given the voice that we have to be involved. But when you work for someone, you are basically paid to do what they tell you. And in this society, again, you can quit. But as long as you're getting paid by that person, be obedient in all things. Now, it says something further. It says not only to uh, be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. You might say, go the extra mile. Be well-pleasing. When your boss looks at you, does he say, now, I am so pleased with that employee. You know, he, he is out to please me. He's gone the extra mile. I found something interesting. Of course, I was studying today for this text. The phrase, well-pleasing, appears six times in the New Testament. Every single time, except this one, it refers singularly to a person pleasing God. It's a special kind of a phrase, to a person pleasing God. Let me give you an example, Acts 7.20. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Philippians 4.18, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Colossians 3.20, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Hebrews 13.21, May the Lord make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight. Now here it says that we ought to be well-pleasing in all things. It's in the context of obeying your earthly boss. I think because of the way it's used in other sections of the Bible, you should put it together this way. You work for an earthly boss, you ought to be obedient to him, but you have another motivation. You have another boss, God. You are working for God in your workplace. You're to be well-pleasing as Moses was well-pleasing to God. As children are well-pleasing to God when they obey their parents, you are well-pleasing to God when you're obedient on the job. Now, stop here for a moment and go left to Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, there's a little bit more of an insight, another window into how this all works. In the sixth chapter, he speaks about the domestic life of the Christian at home, children, fathers. And then he gets to bond servants again in verse 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service, as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With goodwill, doing service as to the Lord, not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And then there's a word to masters, and you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now there's a few things to notice about that, and I think we should dovetail that into our study, don't you? First of all, you're to do it from the heart. 
You know, there's a lot of ways to be obedient, right? You can do it grudgingly. You can say, oh, all right. Like the little kid, when his father said, sit down, he finally said, look, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. It's only because dad had a belt over the kid's head that he sat down. Okay, well, he sat down, but he was standing up inside. You're to do it from the heart. You're to do it from the heart, not grudgingly. And according to verse 6, not when the boss is watching, with eye service as men pleasers. Do you remember in gym class, I guess I use this as an example because I did it so frequently. It was when the coach came by to examine his troops that I got really busy and motivated. Did more sit-ups, push-ups. Now on the job, are you the kind that you're just kicked back until the boss comes? And all of a sudden, you were reading a magazine before, feet were up, having that Pepsi, and you see the boss and your feet get down, you put that furrowed look and you kind of strain so you look studious and you rub in the pencil and you're writing nothing. You're just writing so it looks like you're writing. And then the boss leaves and you go back to the extended break until the boss comes again. That's with eye service. You're doing it because you're only doing it and acting a certain way because he's watching. That's the thing that he's getting at here. Also, for the right reason. Notice, as to Christ. As to Christ. And it says, as to the Lord and not to men. You may get a salary from your company, but your boss is God. If you are a Christian, your boss is God. And you know what? If you believe that, things at work will change. Not just in terms of productivity, but you'll start seeing what you're doing as a divine calling. A post. God has called me to this job because there's people here who need Christ. And by my life, I'm going to do this as unto the Lord, who is my boss. Now you might say, yeah, but, you know, I don't have any glorious jobs, Skip. I have a very nothing kind of a job. I mean, I really don't get that much opportunity even to be in contact with people you don't understand. I have a boring job, okay? Think how boring a first century slave had it. And yet Paul's whole premise here is this. Slaves, be the best slaves you can be. Be the best slaves you can be. Sure. Did you know that many took it seriously? That Christian slaves brought the highest prices at the slave markets because they were known for working so hard. Hard-working slaves, obedient, pleasing their masters in all things. Then it says, not answering back. Um, don't talk back to the boss. Don't talk back to the boss. Now, in the first place, a slave couldn't do much of this during that time. He wouldn't get away. He could only go so far. But he might be tempted to argue with his boss. Especially, and see if this is contemporary. Especially if the master was a Christian master and he was a Christian slave. He might be tempted to think, well, since we're both brothers, I can uh, take advantage. But I don't really mean that. I, uh, he should be nicer to me. And so he might say, instead of, yes, sir, whatever you'd like, he might say, but bro, <laughs> hey, brother, you know, you shouldn't be so harsh on me. I'm a Christian brother. 
Let me sleep in. Let me do what I want. No, actually, if he's a Christian, you should work harder. Because he is your brother. You should work hard anyway to give the Lord a good reputation. But if he's a Christian, you shouldn't take advantage of that person who is a boss who's a Christian. I have met, sadly, many people who said, you know, I won't advertise on Christian radio because I don't like the kind of people that respond to my ads. I don't like the kind of people that come and work who call themselves Christians. And you know, that's a sad testimony. So, don't argue back. Now, you can argue back in a number of ways. Of course, you could say, listen, I do this job. I know it better than you do, so just let me do it the way I want to. Again, you're paid to do what he wants you to do. But secondly, you can talk back in your body language, right? When he tells you to do something, you should do it. It shouldn't be grudgingly, and it shouldn't be with a sour, rebellious look. That's talking back without words. Or you shouldn't talk, and I find this to be a problem perhaps more, behind the boss's back. Let me put it to you this way. Usually in a business, there is a method by which you can level a complaint. There's some kind of a system. If you don't like it, you address your complaint to this person who takes it to the boss or perhaps the boss himself. The worst thing you can do is to have a little party going with the few people that you think, you know, I think that person will agree with me because I just saw what happened to him. Let me go over and talk to him and share my concern with him. Then you've got this little rebellious quell going on. Party spirit. You know, I see that more in Christian organizations than perhaps any other kind of problem with staffs. Is that party spirit going on? Don't talk behind the boss's back. He or she. So the Christian in the workplace is to be known as somebody who respects authority. He ranks under knowing that God is his boss. It's not existential. It's not every man do what is right in your own eyes. Then it says not pilfering, or if you have an old King James, not purloining. Basically, don't rip him off or her off. Don't rip the company off. Not pilfering. Judas had this problem, didn't he? Can you imagine? One of Jesus' own disciples, a thief, but he was a hypocritical thief. He sounded religious. These are the worst kind. Often the people that sound the most spiritual are the greatest rip-offs. When there was the woman who broke that alabaster flask and poured the ointment on Jesus' feet, Judas was there, and of course he complained very piously. He said, so expensive. How could you waste money like that? This could have been sold and used for the poor. It says Judas didn't say this because he had any concern for the poor. He was a thief, and he kept the money box, and he was ripping off Jesus and the disciples in that ministry for himself. He was a thief, pilfering. I think also this is the problem of another famous runaway slave that you may be familiar with in the Old Testament named Onesimus, whose master was Philemon. In fact, flip the page of uh, where you're at in Titus, and uh, you will see the term Philemon at the top, the name Philemon. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Onesimus was the slave. Philemon was no doubt the master of a slave named Onesimus. 
Onesimus, it is thought, ripped off his master, ran away to Rome where he met Paul the Apostle. And by God's providence, Paul preached to him. He was saved through the ministry of Paul the Apostle. Then Paul sends him back to his master, which could be dangerous. But he basically says, verse 10 of Philemon, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in chains. And on and on he talks about him. Verse 18, But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. Forgive him of the sin. If he's ripped you off, let me pay for it. I'll take care of the debt. So he was appealing on his behalf. So, not pilfering. Now, we only have a few moments, so I'm going to kind of conclude this by giving some practical application on this little subject, not pilfering. There are ways that employees can rip off employers. There's a number of them. It happens actually frequently, and I'll tell you how it happens. It happens with justifying this mindset. The mindset is this. I am better and deserve more than what I'm getting at this job. I deserve more money. He doesn't pay me enough. I really work hard for him, or I work hard for her, or this company owes me more. Therefore, I can justify doing what I'm doing because they owe it to me. But stop right there. Didn't you sit down and agree that for so much an hour you would do such and such a work? If you don't like the agreement, then bail and give your notice. But until then, you cannot make that kind of an excuse. And yet people do. And with that mindset or that excuse, here's a few things that can happen. Number one, calling in sick when you're not sick. Now, you might have, you know, ski fever, <laughs> spring fever, but that doesn't count. You say, well, you know, I haven't taken any sick days, so I'm just going to call in sick. But are you sick? Don't you owe it to your employer to give him what was contracted, a full day's work, an honest day's work, especially as a Christian? Secondly, and this is a big, big problem, you can take stuff from the office. You know, it's been estimated that millions and millions of dollars are lost each year in companies by people who take little things, a pencil, a paper clip, stapler. And again, the justification, oh, it's no big deal. You know, I need this more than they do. It's just a desk. There's a chain of drugstores in the southeast part of the United States called Super D Drugs. And the president of Super D said they have, not too long ago, initiated an integrity test to employees because things were missing. He said after giving this test, they've been saving $400,000, almost a half a million dollars, that was lost because of stolen goods by employees. Thirdly, making telephone calls that you don't have the freedom to make. That's a long-distance call, and there's no tag on this line, and let me just see how so-and-so is doing in China. <laughs> how about checking in late and leaving early? Not giving, again, a full day's work or taking a longer break than you're allotted or a longer lunch than you're allotted. Again, you owe an honest day's work. 
Workers in America admit in a poll, and of course I'm sure this was given anonymously and they didn't give it to the employers, working in America admitted that they spent over 20% of their time at work goofing off. That's one day a week. 20%, one day a week, just doing nothing. So, Christians, the, the standard goes up. Slaves, we're not slaves, so we're just employees and we get money for what we do and we have a pretty free life. In comparison to that, man, our integrity level ought to rise, don't you think? We've got to be the best employee they have. Say, yeah, but I have a Christian boss. He should be really nice to me. Now you should be even better and serve him and release him more for the Lord's work. And so the profile of the Christian worker, and I'd like to get into the purpose of the Christian worker, but we're just out of time tonight because of other activities. So we'll continue it next time and we'll finish maybe another two verses after that. Let's pray. Father, as we've looked now at the profile of the Christian worker in this book, in this text, and compared it with others, we see and we believe that it is your word for us. And we're only hurting ourselves and especially the cause and the glory of Jesus Christ on earth if we try to read other things into it. I pray, Father, that as an act of grace, you would allow us, Lord, to be the best workers that are at the job. Lord, that it wouldn't be with eye service. It would be as pleasing you, knowing that you are there, that you promise to be with us in every situation. That even if it's a drag and it's drudgery, inviting your presence to carry us through the day and doing it as unto the Lord, that our place might be changed into the possibility of evangelism. We pray, Father, that our profile would be pleasing to you on the job. Lord, I pray that we'd hear reports in town from this night forward. Glorious reports, good reports. Being so thankful for godly and honest workers. For those that are stable, eager to do the job, willing to serve. Pleasing the boss knowing that you really are the boss behind the earthly boss. Help us, Lord. Resurrect, Father, a strong biblical work ethic in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that we would see our station in life simply as a means to your end. It's not for economic advantage. It's for kingdom advantage to gain more ground because more hearts are being changed by our life, by our witness, Change us, Father. Use us. What a privilege, Lord, that you'd use us. Lord, I pray that whatever station we're in, slave or free, that we'd abide in that calling, as Paul said. In Jesus' name, amen.